Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Rorag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. Dr David Beggs has been a vet in Warrnambool for over 30 years. He is a senior lecturer in cattle medicine at the University of Melbourne editor-in-chief in in the Australian Veterinary Journal and has a PhD in animal welfare. Today we are going to focus our chat with David on animal welfare. Welcome to the Raw Ag Podcast, David. Thank you, Tom. Good to have you in. Um, David and I actually went to school together a long time ago, didn't we, David? Yeah, a bit bit too long ago, I think. Keeps getting longer. Yeah. Obviously, from uh, who David's become now, he would have been one of the smart kids at school and I wasn't quite so that's so smart, but um, anyway, that's uh, that was a long time ago. David, after your time in vet, why did you switch to animal welfare and um, study animal welfare so in depthly? Well, Tom, having been a vet here for a, a long time, I thought that a career change. Everybody handles their midlife crises differently, and for me, that involved changing from being a rural vet to teaching veterinary science at the University of Melbourne. And one of the things that you uh, need to do when you get a position at a university is research. And our relationship with the animals in our custody has always been a thing that's interested me because we need to reconcile the fact that we think we're, we're good farmers and we're good vets and that we look after animals really well with the fact that we raise them in order to kill them and eat them. And... Uh, there's a, an awful lot out there about animal welfare and animal ethics in the media and I thought it would be useful to do some research to understand the science of animal welfare. So exactly what is animal welfare, David? Um, it is complicated, isn't it? Because we have emotions that um, tell us how to think about animal welfare and there's also some science involved, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. There's an official definition of animal welfare, which is um, how an animal is coping with the conditions in which it lives. And so we say that an animal's in a good state of welfare if it's healthy and it's comfortable and it's well nourished and it's safe to express its, and it can express its normal behaviour, things like that. The important thing about animal welfare and the reason we care about it is because it's all about how the animal feels, how the animal perceives its own condition. So animal welfare scientists like me, spent a lot of time and effort trying to get inside the heads of animals and working out how they feel. Now, that's different from animal ethics, which is how humans feel about animals. So the, um, there's lots of people that think that we um, shouldn't eat animals. Um, and there's lots of people that... Uh, shouldn't be caged up or doing yes, anything. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the classic view of the animal welfare scientist is that a dog being bred for food in Vietnam has exactly the same animal welfare requirements as a lap dog in Turak. That both of them need a good life, um, a life worth living, and a humane death. 
and whether or not you think it's okay to um, rear dogs for food or to um, eat whales uh, or indeed to eat cattle. Um, There's large chunks of the world that think you shouldn't do that. Regardless of whether humans feel that it's a good thing to do, the animals still have the requirements of a good life and a humane death. Yeah, so um, uh, and, uh, that's some of the confusions that we have on the farm. I mean, if I, um, I'm a farmer and if, if we have an animal that is injured or terminally ill, my first concern if I've diagnosed it or I've had a vet diagnose that it's terminally ill or injured is to put it down um, and make sure that it does not um, suffer pain and it has a... Um, a, a, a death as, as good as it can be at that stage. Um, people with, uh, that are involved in the ethics of animal welfare can find that confronting and complicated. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The, in animal welfare science terms, the timing of death isn't an animal welfare issue. It's the nature of it. So, for example, uh, if the abattoir calls up and says, look, we can't take your sheep this week, can you send them next week instead? There tends not to be a big uprising and a, a real happiness about what a fantastic animal welfare outcome that these animals lived another week. It's, the, it's how we look after animals during their life and how their life ends that's important from an animal welfare point of view. So... Um, it's not the case that animals should never suffer. It's not the case that humans don't suffer. Um, all of us make sacrifices to achieve things that we we want to. You look at what footballers go through or, or vet students or any of us. We, we all do things that cause us to have uh, a reduced welfare outcome at a given point in order to achieve a, a bigger goal. And the same thing will happen with um, animals, that they will have days where they're too hot and times when they're hungry and uh, periods when they're um, in pain or unwell. And I, I guess it's one of those things that we need to think really carefully about is we, we need to prevent unnecessary suffering because some suffering is necessary. And uh, So would unnecessary suffering fit into the category of perhaps um, nursing and cuddling wild, injured wild animals and things like that. I sometimes have a bit, of compli- a bit of a problem with that, that the animal has never probably met a human before and all of a sudden it's got, uh, it's got a human's arms wrapped around it. I mean, <laughs> is that an animal welfare issue, do you think, sometimes? It's hard to know, Tom. Um, no, right. it, lots of these animals um, that are being brought up in the wild uh, I think probably don't particularly like human contact um, but uh, maybe it's better than um, maybe if it's necessary to save their life uh, so if we're going to take a wild animal uh, one of the things we could do is to euthanize it immediately and that would be a perfectly acceptable animal welfare outcome for an injured wildlife uh, if we do rehabilitate it and put it back into the wild um, the rehabilitation is probably reasonably unpleasant for the animal. Uh, you know, hopefully, when we put it back, it's worth it. Yeah. I guess one of the things... It's hard to know, though, isn't it? Cause yeah. Conversations with um, 
uh, a koala is a quite a difficult thing to do. Well, wildlife is an interesting... So how do you do that in the science side? How do you know? Yeah, uh, the uh, we can measure various things about animal welfare, but one of the interesting things about wildlife is that they have pretty bad animal welfare on the whole. There's not many birds that die in their nests surrounded by their loving family. Mm. Nearly all animals in the wild die of either starvation, predation or disease. And if those animals were in our care, we would not call that humane. No. So in many cases, the animals that we have in our custody farming have way better animal welfare outcomes than animals which are in the wild. What they don't have, which is an important part of animal welfare, is agency. And that's the ability to direct their own fate all the time. So humans um, think that freedom is a very important thing and people will die for the freedom of their country. Um, And so we tend to anthropomorphise that onto animals and think that they need that. And to a degree, I think they do. We, we know that zoo animals that are confined and have nothing to do suffer stress from that. But our animals that are on farms, our cattle, are able to wander around the paddock at will and to, if provided there's food there, they're able to forage for it and they're able to some degree to decide which other animals they interact with and which they don't. And so... The extent to which we can give animals the things that they need, we can actually give them pretty good animal welfare. And it may well be better than the welfare of many uh, wild animals, and it may well be better than the welfare of many people. Why why is uh, animal welfare a risk to farming, or what are the risks of animal welfare to farming concerns? Well, animal welfare is one of those interesting spaces where everybody has an opinion. So as farmers, uh, you produce um, food, Um, some farmers produce fibre, and there are people that have uh, strong opinions about how we do that that don't use those foods and those fibres. So uh, animal welfare has this sort of third-party bystander um, interaction where everybody feels that they have a, a right to a say about how we do these things. And they do. Um, Whilst I'm saying animal welfare is very important and it's a science and we look at how the animals feel, animal ethics is also really important because it's what gives us social licence to do what it is that we do. And social licence is the um, sort of permission that's given by society for people or businesses to make use of natural resources to their own ends. Social licence is really important. The mining industry and the fast food industry have lots of experience with um, the general public disagreeing with the things that they do and taking away social licence to do things at times. The number of mines that have been shut down, for example, and the, the trouble, the PR trouble that some of the fast food places have had over the years are really good examples of things that we want to avoid. And our biggest risk in the agricultural industries is not, I think, that people will stop using our products. Where people feel that they have a, an objection to 
um, the way animals are used. There's a little bit of a perception there too that to profit from animals uh, economically, then animal welfare may stand in the way of, of profit and loss. Oh, look, I think that's true. Um, and what's important is that we continue to improve animal welfare. I think that the animal welfare on our farms is, is pretty good, but there's no doubt that it can be improved. And continuous improvement in time, I think, are very good things to concentrate on. But it's generally better on the farm than it is in the forest, do you think? Uh, well, yes, although we have no control over the forest. Of no. Course. The, um, we think it's okay if a, a fox is chasing a rabbit and kills the rabbit to eat it. I think most people think that's okay because that's just the the natural way of things. And if we grow um, animals and we kill them on other people's behalf Mm. so that they can eat them, it just removes the death one step away from the people who are actually consuming it. And they become a bit uh, shocked by the whole thing because they're not normally confronted by the death of other things. The risks that we have are not so much that people will stop eating our product because uh, that might happen, but most of the surveys that have been done over the years um, of consumers, they rate animal welfare as being important, but price is also very important and various other things like freshness and um, taste fit in there as well. So people that really like eating um, beautiful Tamania beef Mm. um, will unlikely do that because of concerns over the use of artificial insemination instead of uh, natural bulls. Now, we can argue about whether that is actually better or worse for the cattle, but the thing that people do that is the biggest risk to us is that they sign petitions or they go online and make social media comments and they do things which make them feel good but actually involve no personal sacrifice of their own. So they're just doing things because it makes them feel good and because they feel that there's a cause and that if they do that, they've done something about it. And if we look at some of the uh, effective campaigns over the years, remember Save Babe? that has effectively stopped there being sour-free stalls. Mm -hmm. Now, I happen to think that's a good thing, but that didn't happen through um, legislation or Cruelty to Animals Acts or anything like that. That happened by public outcry and the supermarkets responding. And my worry is that the supermarkets are, are continuing to respond to do these things for their own publicity purposes in the name of animal welfare, when often it's got very little or nothing to do with improving animal welfare outcomes. But perhaps for the ethical side and not the scientific side. Is that is that correct? In- uh, well, I think that might be creating an ethical problem. Yeah, I have a bit of trouble yeah. with the word yeah. ethics because ethics, you know, conjures up um, good morality and things like that. It doesn't really mean that in this case, does it? It means... Um, emotional response, really. Well, I think my favourite definition of ethics is how we constrain our own self-interest. Okay. So when we're doing something ethically, we're, for example, not eating beef, which we would love to do, because of some 
higher reason that stops us from doing that. Mm-hmm. And when we're not stealing from someone... Yeah, that's good. We're not stealing. We're constraining our own interests because of some sort of higher public good. Mm. So I think, yeah, ethics is, is really important. David, um, how can um, we demonstrate good animal welfare? There must be measures and ways that scientifically you can tell whether an animal is happy or sad or stressed or not. That's right. We can tell an individual animal and we can look at populations of animals. The, the current animal welfare thinking is that we need to give animals um, a good life. And so there's a quality of life scale that talks about having a good life or a life worth living um, or a point of balance or a life not worth living uh, or indeed a life worth avoiding. And once you start to categorise things like that, I think we can look at the sum total of an animal's life and make some assessment as to where things fit. I also think that um, there's a there's a real ethical thing about whether or not an animal should have existed in the first place. Hmm. Um, one of the, the big arguments of the people who are... Um, very much against farming at all is that you shouldn't have farmed these animals in the first place because you have to kill them. Now, I have a, a, a problem with that. I think um, we would be much better off if we were worried about increasing the, um, the animal welfare outcomes for all animals rather than just concentrating on their death. Um, if you look at a, a canola crop, for example... That's a, a good example of somewhere where there's a very little um, animals because there's no water points for um, wildlife to share, for example. And there's uh, no insects because they're um, poisoned. Uh, there needs to be a few bees around for a minute. Yeah, or, or there's beautiful <laughs> yellow flowers for one month of the year and then nothing for 11 months of the year. Yeah. No wonder the bees die. And the birds starve because there's no insects for them to eat. And the uh, mice and dunarts and all the, the native wildlife that might live there can't because they um, die of thirst because there's, there's no water points and no useful feed for them. So we've had, when the bushfires came through, huge concerns about the clearing of large animal, large areas where all the wildlife in them disappeared. But we don't worry about that with a canola crop or an almond crop. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so the biodiversity that's able to occur on rangeland farming is so much better than that in cropping. And if we start to get into ethical debates about whether or not it was better to do something that has prevented wildlife from existing at all, um, or whether it's better to have uh, eaten something which we've raised humanely and then, then killed and eaten, I think... Um, people will have different views on that, but it's uh, an argument that can be had. David, um, in your feeling, where is um, in farming, where are the animal welfare practices that we should be, as a society, we should be honing in on and trying to straighten out? It, there's, a, there's a number of them, I suppose. I think um, one of the important things is that farmers should be transparent about the way that they manage animal welfare and animal welfare risks. The experience in the fast food industry 
suggests that uh, the general public sort of wants to know where their food comes from and they sort of don't. They want to trust that it's being produced humanely. And one of the ways that we can do that is to make sure that farms do have animal welfare plans. I've been involved in a project called Welfare Check where uh, members of the Australian Cattle Vets can go onto farms and produce animal welfare plans for farmers. And these look at all the major risks to animal welfare and just document how they are being managed on farms. And that's a really useful thing to do because uh, animal welfare is largely risk management. Um, beef farming has various challenges. Some people don't like the idea of using artificial insemination. Um, however, from the animal's point of view, uh, there's, there's, there's probably little difference between that and the use of natural bulls, um, although maybe being injected with hormones um, is a transiently unpleasant experience. Um, but also... Uh, it's unclear how you would manage these things better because I don't think that the animals have a bad life because of them. There are little bits and pieces where they need to make sacrifices so that they can live in nice small groups in paddocks with lots of grass and in social groups that are of a, an appropriate size and that they can go about their daily activities that they wish to go about. Yeah, and, and I think you see that in livestock. I mean, if they really, really did not enjoy their experience in the in the cattle yards they would object to going there they would be get frightened and fearful perhaps i think that's right it's hard to know what makes animals really happy um you know, i know how to make my parents dog labrador happy you can go up and give it a pat and you can see that it's plainly really really happy it's not so clear how i would give my favorite cow a moment of extreme pleasure and so humans have been around about 200,000 years and uh, mammals, herd animals, have been around for about uh, 200 million years. So we probably share a lot of the motivations for things which we call happiness. Animal welfare scientists call it a positive affective state. So something which is um, making us have pleasant sensations rather than unpleasant. And... We probably share lots of those same things, but there are also differences. A classic um, example of where humans and animals don't like the same thing would be water. Uh, we know from lots of experiments that cattle like water to be slightly brackish, a um, little bit of salt in it. If you offer them water from a dam or a creek compared to um, really clean town water, uh, they'll tend to choose mm. the, the other yeah. one. Whereas humans um, don't like that at all. A taste for salt is something which is universal. Most animals love a taste for salt, but cows like it in their water and humans like it on their food. Yeah. So there are, there are differences between the things that make us happy and the things that don't. Humans love uh, challenge. Um, cows, I think, probably prefer contentment rather than uh, lots of individual episodes of extreme pleasure. Yeah. So a bit like, you know, let the cows inside because it's cold outside tonight. We're, we wouldn't want to be standing out in the cold, would we? But they are quite content standing out in the cold. Yeah, we know that cows have a thermoneutral zone that goes well into the negative degrees. They can manage really quite cold situations and 
uh, handle it well. They don't handle heat at all well. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's interesting. The wildlife that's out there has no um, no protection from climate, although I suppose to some extent wildlife can migrate to and from areas that suit it. So by definition, they like being there. But uh, all of animals and humans will have days where they are uncomfortable because of climate. But that doesn't a few bad days like that doesn't necessarily add up to a life worth avoiding. So producer Kate here, my question for you both is around because um, even from a media perspective, we come from both very different worlds. Mm -hmm. So from each of you, what are the biggest challenges that you're facing? Because we're talking about the farmer and the welfare to, to traditionally two different sides of the fence, though that may be a misconception in itself. So what are the biggest challenges that each of you face and then how should we be combating it? not just as a farmer or in the welfare department, but even as a community. David? I think the, the biggest challenge we face is the uh, recognition that other people's ethical beliefs are valid. We do it quite well in the sporting arena, don't we? Have you ever tried to convince someone not to, bar not to barrack for Collingwood on the basis that um, another team is empirically better? So we, we perfectly accept people's views on things like that. But if you've got someone that really genuinely believes that we should not eat meat, that's an ethical belief and it's quite valid and we need to respect that. Um, what we, I think, our biggest challenge is the, uh, the thought that we need to combat and confront and change these people to make them be like us. Uh, most of the problems in the world have arisen because of um, religious leaders who have done exactly that, who have said, you don't think the way I do, you must think that way. Um, and things will work a lot better if we can just learn to live with each other and accept that not everybody wants to eat the products of our farms uh, and that people who don't wish to eat the products of our farms also need to accept that people do. And if we can get a mutual respect going, will be much better off than trying to come through some confrontational approach where we want everybody else to be like us. Tom, what about you? Well, I agree with David. I think the polarisation in the debate is a big problem because, and um, uh, the, there are, the agriculture has a lot to contribute factually about what is correct and right and wrong scientifically and needs to be corrected about um, what community concerns are into animal welfare so that they can take on some of those challenges and address them. Um, but I do think that there's some tribalism creeping into some of these debates, not so much animal welfare, and we do get animal welfare confused with animal liberation, which is very tribal. Um, and I think that the members of animal liberation join animal liberation organisations actually to believe in something higher than themselves. And it's almost becoming a religious um, following in itself. But I think that if we can um, reduce the polarisation in the conversation and so that people can come together and talk about the truth and the actual information and the actual goings-on that's occurring, then I think we would make a 
long and um, improved inroad for both animals and both for our own happiness in having animals and enjoying them in our lives. And you you would nearly agree with that, David, in terms of if people are actually interested in making the changes, to be getting involved with the research or to be getting in contact and doing the reading. Yes. It's important to just remember where science sits. Mm. Um, When you work something out um, about what an animal thinks and animal welfare science is a science, but science can only... um, Science can only tell you facts. It can't tell you whether they're good or not and whether you should do things or whether you shouldn't Mm. do them. And uh, it's lovely to know about the the truth about things, but different people have different truths. And there will be... Well, there are people who join um, lots of different organisations to be a a part of something higher, and that's okay. I don't see the need to change their way of thinking as much as the need to uh, accept them for what they are and expect the same in return. Hmm. Great, guys. Great. Oh, you look like you had more to say. <laughs> no, what you'd say. So, well, I, I do. I agree with I David. I knew that you were a bit, I agree. Yeah. I agree with David, but I still think if the reducing the polarisation so that people can have their different views um, and everyone can be content that their views... Are, um, so you're are, are thinking respected. about extremists but, almost. Is I mean, that I'm thinking about extremists as um, both in because there are some people that are cruel to animals that aren't prepared to accept it too, and you know that they are the ones we've got to get to just as much as someone who's right off the other ex- extreme and think that every single action is um, cruel to animals, and I wouldn't like to live in that space, but. To reduce the polarisation and have everyone accept everyone's points of view, the information flow will occur better. And I'm not, I don't want us all to come to one single universal truth on the matter. I don't, that'll never happen. But um, I think we've got a polarising issue, which is difficult to get through. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app. 